and invite you now to turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're back there this morning. And we are at a place in the book of Hebrews, if you are kind of watching the big picture of the Bible study of Hebrews, what a great book. But this book uh, is at a place where it's more applicational. It's time to apply. This is all the theology, all the buildup to sort of turning the corner in verse 19 of chapter 10 towards how does this live out? And I want to encourage you to think in terms of applications a little bit differently than has been taught in the church, even over the last 50 years, I would say. The church has become a lot more inward than outward in a lot of ways, especially in terms of application. And I don't just mean in terms of whether you're doing evangelism out in the highways and byways, but I mean in terms of how we think about what it means to live Christianly, live as Christians. What's a Christian experience supposed to be like? I'd venture to say that for many of you, you at some point thought about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, prayer, Bible study, personal Bible study, personal prayer life, meditation. These are all great things. These are all important parts and aspects of the spiritual life. But what happens individually with those disciplines should not just stay individual. It needs to go out into the body life, into the one another's into the relationships of the community and the household of faith. The scripture has a lot, a lot more plurals than you might think. There's a lot of singular in the language of scripture, do this. But a lot of times the do's and don'ts and the wills and the shalls and the promises are cast in the plural, cast in terms of body life and how it lives out as a family. And this is where Hebrews is specifically taking all these wonderful promises of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Your sins are gone. You have a living relationship with the Lord where he speaks to your heart with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And those dynamics are now cast. And really they always have been through the book, but specifically into applications, applications that are broader than just the individual, but in terms of the body, coming to the house of God, being a part of the household of faith. This kind of understanding is countercultural, even to Alaskans who like to get away and isolate and individualize and go off the grid. And I understand those sentiments. I understand those realities. I even understand those needs, the needs to get away, the need to get away like Christ going away on the mountain and praying all night long. I get it. And that's deeply rooted in scripture. But isolation is not the end in Christian experience. Christian experience is about coming together, about joining, about singing and sharing and hearing and talking before and after church. And I I just want to reframe this morning in those terms so that you understand um, really how this is to be lived out and where there's real power in the Christian life in engagement with the Christian community, the Christian fellowship that we have. Technology is uh, profound, is it not? I'm using a smartphone this morning to time myself so I don't go on forever and ever. Uh, It's 
it's important. We have our little mini computers, many of us, and never before has the gospel been able to go out like it does, but through smartphones and through the internet and through technology, and it's great. I sit and listen to uh, Heroes of the Faith all the time and, and read, more specifically read people that I always wanted to read, you know, directly without having to go to a library. A library for you young people was a place, it was a room where there were many books and it was categorized. But now I just, I just Google for stuff and find things and it works in my study every week. I, I enjoy technology. I enjoy the accessibility that technology has given us, even all the way up here in Alaska to be able to just even speak into the air and be connected to someone across the world or in the lower 48 or whatever and, and see them and engage them and, you know, watch things happening uh, like in rooms, you know, between your phone and their phone. It's incredible. And so those great dynamics I would never wish away. There are negatives, though, and not just immoral negatives that come with that kind of technology. The, the negative sort of creeping negative that can happen within the soul is the idea to isolate. By being so broadly networked, we can sort of hide within that ocean of being networked, right? You can isolate, you can scroll through Facebook um, pictures and other people's experiences. And instead of engaging those people, you feel yourself isolating away into a dark corner where you say, man, I'm not having what they have. I'm all alone. Well, in the Christian life, that can happen as well, where you see Christianity happening out there with body life, but you're not engaged in it as you ought to be in a way that can truly help you and truly give you the the power that you need. Church history is um, sort of playing out before us. And I wonder if church history will, will read of and talk about gospel revival going through technology, but also the fight that we need against consumerism in Christianity that we've lived, right? Where people come and sort of individually grade what's going on. Instead of grading, we need to engage. That might be a phrase of the morning. Don't grade, engage. Engage within the body life. One person put it this way, it was Al Mohler. I, I love the way he just rebuked one day um, his audience saying, you can't go to church on YouTube. You can't, it's, it's not enough. It's okay to enjoy and leverage technology. It's beautiful to do that in some regards, but don't replace church corporate worship with YouTube. You can't do it. It doesn't work. You can't even replace the the body life with personal piety. You can't say, look, I'm going to go find God out there often and always and say that that's enough. It's not enough. It's part of it, but it's not the whole. Even leading your home, people will, will say, look, my priority is my home life, my kids, my spouse. So I can't get involved in church like, like you people, but to involve your kids at the church is leading in the home. So these are sort of false bifurcations and contradictions that, that really are not biblical. So we need to prioritize our spiritual disciplines. We need to prioritize our family, but we need to prioritize the family of God within all of that. So if you look at verse 25 of chapter 10, this is really what's fueling today's sermon. This is the sin. This is the the thing to focus on not doing, not allowing to have happened to you. Verse 25, chapter 10, not neglecting to meet together. Look at this phrase, as is the habit of some. 
So in the earliest stages of the church, this is pre-AD 70, people were beginning to ghost on church sometimes and just make it their habit. They, it was the custom of some to just slip away and skip church, even for long seasons. Hebrews is saying that this disconnection with church is very serious. In fact, when you begin to step away from church one week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, a season, just a season. Well, you know, I'm really not connected to a church. I'm connected to the Lord. I know you've never heard people talk this way, right? I, I, you know, we've got a great connection, but I just don't do that church thing. Well, the danger of that, according to Hebrews in the next section is chock full of warnings where people are not stepping away from church. That's step one, but really they're stepping away from the Lord altogether. They are dangerously close to apostasy, walking away from Christ altogether where they never were saved in the first place. You know, it's first John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. These are the warnings throughout, peppered throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 1, don't drift. People were drifting. Chapter 2, verse 3, neglecting the faith. Um, chapter 3, 8, hardening their hearts. Chapter 3, 10, going astray. Chapter 3, 12, uh, unbelieving, falling away. Chapter 4, verse 3, not entering God's rest. Chapter 6, verse 6, falling away. Chapter 6, um, that same verse, holding him up to contempt. Chapter 6, verse 8, worthless and near to being cursed. This is all the opposite of running the race with endurance. We're called to inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, keep going one foot in front of the other, run, 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 not as an individual, but running with a group, running with a group, encourage, come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. Just like we talked about winning state. That, that's, it's that kind of endurance. It's that kind of real life living out of the Christianity where you don't start and then stop. Stopping church is saying, I, I, I'm tapping out. Tap, I, I, I need to be out of the race. I'm out. For whatever reason, I'm out. And that's what the scripture here is warning against. Missing church is subtle and powerful and determinative. Determinative where, with where people end up spiritually and even eternally. Not saying in terms of a Roman Catholic sense that our commitment to the church is what's getting us to heaven, but I'm saying that when people isolate themselves from Christian community, it is a drift away from the Lord, from the Lord's accountability, from the Lord's life-giving word, from the Lord's life-giving worship and fellowship. These are sanctifying dynamics that happen within the heart. And as a heart drifts from the means of grace and the opportunity of being around these powerful dynamics within church, someone can harden themselves away and find themselves to having never been a Christian in the first place. And that's a mystery, but it is scriptural. It's the doctrine of perseverance. You don't want to normalize a no accountability life, a secular um, life of secular friendships, a non-contact with the word of God. 
So what do you do with church matters? Have you ever talked to someone that says, ah, you know, and this is just layman's language. And I, I used to really be kind of turned off by this, but now I, I listen more attentively when people say, you know, yeah, I've, I, I used to be, you know, part of church, but now I, I don't really have a whole lot to do with it anymore. That, right. You've heard people talk that way, right? Not just in terms of Christ, but they just say, yeah, I don't have a lot to do with that anymore. What's the it? Well, they're talking about church. They're saying there was a time where I was connected to God within God's people, God's family. His, their parents might've had them there or grandparents or whatever. And now they have nothing to do with the Christian community. They've just walked away from it. The it factor. It's talking about going to church. Well, I take that, that issue more seriously now. And I think we should within the text of scripture that we're looking at this morning. Look at verse 21. So I'm starting in verse 19, but just skip down to 21. This phrase, we're talking about a great high priest over the house of God, the household of faith, the house of God. Jesus is the head of the church. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking corporate church. And then as I already read, verse 25, neglecting to meet together, that's In the King James, forsaking the assembly, I believe King James put it that way. These are applications for going to church. That's what we're talking about. If you have your outline, applications for going to church. The first point is this. Corporate worship is wide open for believers. That's where we're beginning. Verses 19 and 21. Corporate worship is wide open for believers. It's wide open. Uh, Corporate worship I'm using for church, you could say it that way, church is wide open for believers. When I say church, that's the Greek word ekklesia or ekklesia, however you put the emphasis there. And it's, that means literally to be called out, ek out, kaleo, called, it's called out. It's the group that's called out from the world. It's the group that's like us. We're a local ecclesia. We're called out from the world. We're called out from the world, but we're called together. And so ecclesia is used over and over in the New Testament for assemblies that were gathered together. The Germanic and Scottish uh, dialect uh, used the word biblically uh, for church. It, it came from the word kirk, K-I-R-K. That's where you get the word church originally from the um, Scottish and Germanic dialect. And so Kirk in Scottish speak and German speak is a word for house. And we're talking again about the household of faith, not a a building per se. Ours is a multi-purpose building. You've seen buildings where you have tall spires and architecture, but don't be turned off by the building that people call churches because the buildings are architecture that are reflecting the household of faith that's gathering there. It's just to accommodate worship. It's why ceilings often are high in worship spaces because the family built a house with a high ceiling just to help them artistically in terms of design, in terms of functionality. That's all part of gathering as a people. Small and large gatherings have always been happening within the initiation of the church at Acts 2. It's the house of God. All of These applications, by the way, again, build on everything that chapter 10 has been talking about, the once for all sacrifice and inner transformation, personal engagement, full assurance of forgiveness of sins that are never remembered against us. And then you have verse 19. Look at this. Therefore, based on all this 
truckload of awesome experience and, and truth that's happened in your individual heart. What does that mean? Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since, and look at that's plural, brothers, which includes brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he, Christ, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, Verse 22, let us, think of it in a group, like this is a rally session. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let's stop there. And that's the idea. This is a connection of scripture where it's saying, look, because we have all of these great realities, we have this fresh, clear conscience and we have the blood of Jesus Christ as our means to enter in. Let's all enter in worship together. That's what the sense of this text is saying. Enter in. Confidence here is a great word. When you think of coming into the presence of God, an early church Jewish Christian would have said, you know, I'm afraid of God. I fear God. Now, early church Jewish Christian just would have been raised in the fear of God in a different way than we would have. The stories about the world opening up and the tribe of Korah being swallowed because they blasphemed God because they, they complained too much. Hophni and Phinehas offering strange fire and being just, you know, engulfed by lightning-like fear in the Holy of Holies. These dynamics um, were part of how they understood God. Look at verse 31, for unbelievers, the warning here in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They feared God, and yet for the believer, we have confidence. This is a word that's used over and over in the New Testament in different ways for um, open, plain speech. It was being outspoken in confidence. It's, it's being open. It's being able to talk. It's like Jesus when the disciples said, ah, now you are speaking confidently or plainly and not using figurative speech. We're to come confidently before the Lord. But if you look at um, the text again, there's all kinds of warning language that's beyond um, our section this morning. Fearful expectation, a fury of fire that'll consume adversaries, a worse punishment, verse 29, vengeance, verse 30, verse 31, fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So what's the difference between our relationship with the Lord where we should go in confidently as a group, Go in and enter into worship confidently versus someone who should fear the Lord and fear vengeance and fear wrath. You know the difference? We know God as our heavenly father. People who do not know God do not know him as their heavenly father. Even our culture is honest about that. You will not often hear someone say, you know, I covet your prayers in this great tragedy. If they're an unbeliever, they'll say that much, but they won't say of my heavenly father. J.I. Packer said it best, the Christian name for God is Father, right? We have an Abba, Daddy-like Father relationship with the Lord. That's Christianity. I remember being uh, at college, Christian college in Virginia. I went to Liberty. 
and it was four four hours away, roughly, if you were spa- obeyed the speed limit, four hours to get home uh, to Virginia Beach. And the cops were very, very stringent, so you really needed to on those country roads. But I, I decided to do kind of just a quick trip home. It's probably you know, 8 p.m. and I decided, hey, got my friend, let's go stay at my house this weekend in Virginia Beach. Let's leave college. And so we did that. So we we jumped in the car and just, just blazed home. But I was taking, you know, long, it was taking longer than I had expected. And my parents, I was surprising them. I didn't tell them I was coming home. And so I was jiggling the front door key of my house at about one in the morning. So that's smart to do because my dad owns a, a couple pistols, you know, and I mean, so, it, you know, I just really wasn't thinking about that. And we came into the foyer and at the top of the stairs, I just saw just a flash go right across the top of the stairs. It was my dad. And I'm sure he was armed. He never told me. But, you know, the corner of his eye, he saw who it was. I'm like, it's just me. And, you know, dad turned from, you know, one posture, one disposition of fight to complete teddy bear. And he came back across the steps this way. It was just in a complete face flop. You know, I'm just like, oh, my goodness, you just scared me to death. And that's the difference between people who are adversaries of a holy consuming God. And how we are to approach him as our heavenly father. Do you see that dramatic difference? It's adversary, someone who is, is offended by our sins versus someone who is open with loving arms towards us, welcoming us into his fellowship. That's, and think of this, not just individually. We do go to God individually, but think of it corporately. We go together to the throne room of our living God. Where does this fatherly acceptance come from? Look at verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through his flesh. The flesh here is Christ's flesh and the flesh is the new curtain through which you go. That's the idea. That's the idea. What's new? Well, the old system was offering sacrifices in episodes. It was like, Kind of like the tone that we would feel in an employee-employer relationship where we have deliverables, we're meeting expectations. This is a new way. This is a family way. All through the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way. Acts 9, 18, 19, 22, 24, 24. There's verses all through Acts on calling Christianity the way. This is an amazing new way. This is not the old way that was formal with deliverables and things you had to do, right? How you feel on the job. This is a relationship way. It's an invitation way. It's Christ who is called the way. We're coming through his blood and his torn flesh into the throne. We've been adopted. When you're adopted into a family, you're sort of figuring that out. I'm sure I'm not adopted, but I'm sure if any of you know what that's like, even as an older person adopted, you're wondering what you should do or not do. Can I be myself? Will I mess up at dinner? What will that look like? Will I offend? Will I be rejected? These trepidations that we feel and fear, they they should be removed and drop as we live in this relationship. The holy place was chapter nine, verse two. That was one room of worship with the tabernacle. And then you had the most holy place where only the priest would be able to go behind the curtain. And only once a year, it was the day of atonement. 
And if that person went inappropriately or it was the wrong person, that person was met with instant death. It was off limits. Well, Christ's death transforms the symbol of this curtain, a curtain that was thick and high and deep, and it was woven in material that in no way could someone physically rip that with their hands. It was like impenetrable. It was a picture of God's majesty and God's gravity. And a priest would go behind that curtain and offer a sacrifice for himself and an offer a sacrifice for everyone else. But this curtain by the death of Christ, according to Matthew 27, 50, do you remember this? It was ripped from top to bottom. Isn't that amazing? Think of it this way. Back in the Old Testament, the priest would go behind the curtain. Everybody would wait outside and anticipate and listen for the bells that were woven in his garment and try to hear if that priest was going to come back out and everything was okay. And everybody lets out a collective sigh of relief. Ah. <sighs> We're forgiven. We're okay. We're still in good standing with the Lord. Lightning didn't strike us this year, so we're good. And now we're going to offer daily sacrifices to kind of keep this up. That versus Christ who through his flesh goes in as the priest and rips the curtain top to bottom, turns around and says, come on in. Come on in. All of us come in as a group and participate in worship. This is a new and living way into the heavenly temple saying, come into verse 21, the house of God. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we've got a new situation where we come in with confidence. Well, that's point one. You're all welcome in. You come in in a wide open sense. First or point two, corporate worship provides deep intimacy with Christ. This is verse 22, the first of three let us commands. Let us, let us, let us. Not talking about food. We're talking about commands. Let us, let us draw near, draw near. Drawing near, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's a command to unbelievers to draw near. Psalm 73, 28, we read this earlier. For believers, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. It's good to be here. I want to be here. I want to tell of your works. Drawing near is one of the favorite phrases of the author of Hebrews 4.16, and 22. Draw near, draw near, draw near. What he's saying is the Christian, and we should believe this as a principle, the Christian is called to live in two worlds. You're called to live in two worlds, two mindsets. We do live in the here and now in terms of life and things we got to do, right? I had to get my boys out and started to rake some leaves yesterday. All of that beautiful goldenness needs to be raked off my green lawn before it's covered in icy snow, right? All that's got to happen. We got to do it. But as you live in that world, you're supposed to live in a world where you draw near. And it's so important to draw near individually. And that's like a candle, but it's important to put all the candles together and draw near corporately. Drawing near corporately on a Sunday morning is so important for the Christian life, for the Christian race. It just is. It's intimacy that we enjoy together. It's intimacy where we're all going in through the front door 
full of assurances and certainties that we experience intimate worship from. It flows from the inside as we corporately sing among ourselves within the assembly with with worship that originates from a full knowledge. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have a full assurance, a full knowledge that we are saved with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The idea of being sprinkled clean would have resonated with both the priest and the um, early Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians would have known that the priests were regularly washing themselves ceremonially, washing themselves and washing the temple furniture over and over and over again. It's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Pony Ross conscience. It's a a conscience that was hardened before. When you were unsaved, you were hardened in your conscience. You were hardened in disbelief. You were hardened from the deceitfulness of breathing the air of this world that hurts our conscience, that causes us to, to drift from God, to not want God. All of this has been sprinkled clean and, and then our evil consciences have been washed. What was once seared or hardened near to be seared to eternity has been softened. And then our bodies washed with pure water. There were basins, not just for the priests, where they would wash their hands, wash their feet, wash their face, wash, wash, wash. But there were basins that, according to the Old Testament scripture, were required for lay people to regularly Wash. Leviticus 15 speaks of this. Whenever there was a, a, a secretion or a bodily discharge or something that was that would happen naturally in physicality, it would it would unsanctify and uncleanse your bed or it unsanctify or uncleanse the saddle of of the animal that you would ride. All of these things required regular washing. It was, it was a horrible way to live in the fear of God, thinking I need to be obedient and wash and wash and wash. And there were basins even by the front door of people's homes where they would wash. I understand that with uh, four boys, many now they're, they're older on the older side, but when they were younger, like two years old, I used to just, we'd get a big tub and fill it with Dawn liquid, right? You know, and just throw them in. You, you need a thorough cleansing I understand, but as Christians, we needed a heart cleansing. Ezekiel 36, 25 predicted this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be made clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart. John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that's talking about spiritual cleansing. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not by works done in righteousness according to his own mercy, but by the washing of regeneration. You've been made clean. And so knowing this, we come with confidence. And we also come with a commitment to truth. Look at verse 23. This is point three. Corporate worship is committed to truth. Committed to truth. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Listen, truth matters in terms of worship. If you do not have truth as the central focus of your worship service, you will not have Christ as the central focus of your worship service. Make no mistake. 
It's a strong and bold statement, but I want to make it. If you do not have truth as the central focus of your worship service, then you will not have Christ as the central focus of your worship service. You might have emotion. You might have experiences. You might have people saying things, speaking things in the air. You might have people reacting and responding viscerally. You might have people speaking things authoritatively, but if you're not centered on truth, speaking truth, hearing truth, then you do not have the truth revelation of Christ. Christ calls himself the truth. The Holy Spirit calls himself the spirit of truth. Without having truth, without having a clear biblical revelation of who Christ is, you are making up who you think Christ is with your own mind. You know what that is? Idolatry. It's idolatry. Unless we know Christ through truth as he's revealed in truth, we do not have Christ. Christ is revealed in scripture and we hold on to him as we hold on to the truth because he's revealed by the Holy Spirit to our hearts through Truth, this is holding, this is clinging to the confession of our hope. Hope here, El Pidos, it, it speaks of a, not a, a wish, but a hope, a guarantee, a promise that we're holding on to as we hold on to truth, as we sing truth without wavering, without wavering, without drifting away from church, without drifting away from truth, without drifting away from fellowship, without walking away from God. That's what this is talking about. This is the confession of our hope, the homologeion of the Elpidos. It's our targeted aim. All of our gospel commitments that are spoken and sung are all needing to be grounded in truth. This is the inhale and the exhale of the Christian marathon race that we run. We do it with truth. Again, I've mentioned this before, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same dynamic as being filled with truth and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in your mind as you think on truth. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's not just Bible studying. It is getting at what's there, but it's meditating. It's clinging to God as you worship him for who he is revealed to be from scripture. That's what we're talking about. From doing that, songs and hymns and spiritual songs flow out of that. And Ephesians 5.18 says the same thing. Don't be drunk with wine. It's debauchery, be filled with the spirit. In other words, yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. Come under the the leadership of the Holy Spirit, which is the same as coming under him as he's revealed in truth. And then the same outflow of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart, giving thanks. All these things happen and flow out of your worship. Do you know, I want to say this too, your conversations as you gather before church and after church and even some during church, even during the sermon, I know you talk, I get it because you're excited about things. You might say, that seems wrong to talk. Well, if you're pumped about something that you hear or you disagree with something you hear, you're qu- you, you know, sometimes you'll say, is that true? Or, you know, I will have to look at that later or let's dig in. You're engaging truth. And that's important because you want to engage God. You don't want to be unmoored and drifting from truth. You want to come under his authoritative word, his presence here by the Holy Spirit. That's this dynamic. 
I read this article. I thought it was really good from Desiring God Ministries. It's from a pastor named Nick Offenkamp, um, German um, guy. He says, your church needs you to sing. He says, in my years as a worship pastor, I've found that the most powerful leaders in congregational worship are always, almost always found in the pews. He said, the expecting mother who suffered a devastating miscarriage the day before, but through the tears sings out in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. The young professional who, because of his Christian convictions on sexuality, was fired from his dream job on Friday, but who arrives on Sunday and belts out how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord has laid for your faith in his excellent word. The divorced woman battling with loneliness and depression who declares, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. The 76-year-old husband and wife who recently buried their youngest daughter and two granddaughters but still sit in the second row on Sunday morning as they have for the past 40 years and they cry out, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. This is, listen, I get it in terms of your personal prayer life. You gotta have it. I get it in terms of getting away. But you got to have this. Don't sacrifice that for this. Even some sort of, you know, high individual spirituality. Don't sacrifice that for this. This fuels that and that fuels this. But you got to have this. You got to come to church. It is your mission also to get the other people here at church. There are too many empty seats here this morning for this sermon. We got to call people to church. Hey, where you been? That's a serious conversation. It's a serious thing you got to do. Haven't seen you in a while. Let's talk about that. What's going on? What's beneath the surface of, well, I've gotten out of the habit of church. There's a disconnection that goes on when people begin to drift from church. Unless they're going to another church that's preaching truth, then that's okay. You should communicate about it, but that's actually can be a wonderful thing. It's just people need to be under truth to care about people, caring about each other. This is not just the paid staff's job. This is the body's job to watch out for each other in church. Well, how do, how do we stave off apostasy? How do we stave off running away? Verse 24 is very explicit. This is the third, let us. We let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stirring up is encouraging. You just tie those two words together. The stir up of verse 24 is the encouraging of verse 25. Don't underestimate the power of encouragement. Don't underestimate the power of a conversation. I'll never forget being 15 years old, and this is not a spiritual dynamic, but it was a friend of mine who's now a pastor who said, Jeff, you know, you just seem like you're kind of lethargic right now and you need to get a job. You need to do, what are you going to do? And I started to train in lifeguard training and started swimming and and gotten I, for the next 10 years, I was in one swimming teaching lessons job, you know, water rescue and lifeguarding job that was uh, sort of 
underwriting uh, different needs I had as a teenager and into college. I mean, it just became a thing, but that was from one conversation. And I can say this uh, probably for all of you that there have been life determining one conversations that have happened in your lifetime where somebody says, I see this in your life. Have you ever considered doing that, joining this, being a part of that? That's the power of body life. That's how you inspire people. I love John Piper's um, phrase that he says often that books don't change people, paragraphs do, right? This is, uh, he said, I've often said books don't change people, paragraphs do, sometimes sentences. It's not fair to books since paragraphs find their way to us through books and they often gain their peculiar, um, peculiar power because of the context they have in the book. But the point remains one sentence or paragraph may lodge itself so powerfully in our mind that its effect is enormous when all else is forgotten. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir. Stirring, this is a powerful word. It's, it's the idea of being spurred. It's, it's something that is literally staving off apostasy. You observe something in someone's life and you, you spur them. The sharp disagreement of Paul and Barnabas, that word disagreement is that same word, stir. They had a massive stir and it was negative. Well, by contrast, you can have a na- massive life-changing, life-altering conversation that can stir someone back the other way. Don't underestimate it. How many excuses can you come up with? Let me say it this way. How many excuses can the devil come up with for you to think about while you get ready for church in the morning to not go to church? How many, right? We we sing that song, bless the Lord, 10,000 reasons. You know, we're talking positively. Think about the 10,000 reasons not to come to church, to not praise God for the gospel. My work week's hard. I need a break. True. I have an awkward, strained relationship at church. True. Check. Preferences. I do not like at the church. True. Got it. I'm bored with church. Yes. True. Got it. I don't like just preaching. All right, never mind. All right, just move on. I want to do something else on Sunday. True, I got it. I just do not want to deal with a particular sin I'm harboring. True. These are a million reasons, and there's an override switch that God gives to those reasons every, that we should apply every single week. And it's, it's simply this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all, And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Your Bible should have capital D and then A-Y there because the day is talking about the return of Christ. Why do you come to church? You should come to church and not form this habit of going to the cabin where things fall apart in your life because you're neglecting church because you don't want to apostatize. You don't want to walk away from the faith. And that's all in the context of, because the accountability of Christ is coming. That's why you want to be in church. It's like there's, there's a hurricane coming. It's like the weather channel where you, you see it coming up, you know, up the East Coast. There's, there's a day coming and it's the hurricane. And the name of the hurricane is the Lord Jesus Christ coming on a white horse with a, a vesture dipped in blood with the name written on his thigh, the word of God. And he's got a two-edged sword. You don't want to be outside of the household of faith when that happens. That's what this is about. Don't skip church because you don't want that to happen. 
You know, don't just board up your house and kind of wait out the hurricane. I'm kind of mixing the metaphor. Get out, right? Flip it around. You need to get out and get into church. You got you to take precautions here. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. First Thessalonians 5, 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You want to be that person. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, the world is going to one day burn over, 2 Peter 3, 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So when you ask someone, where you been? What are you doing with church? Don't underestimate that, the power of that conversation. Have that conversation. If the Lord has laid it in your heart to have that conversation, have that conversation with each other, with others. Draw near together as a corporate body. We need each other, right? Amen? We need each other.